Hey, witches. Welcome to The Lion, The Witch, and The Podcast. We are two mystic Leos discussing spirituality and human condition in the post-pandemic world. So hop in, witches, for going hexing. Did you miss us? Because we missed you. We missed you. How's everyone sewing? How was? How was your sewing, Sean? It was fun. It was a good time. I hung out with a friend. We did very low spoon witchy things and kind of generally just low spoon things. We watched some movies. We carved some pumpkins. Uh, we had a pumpkin beer. It was a good time. We crunched around on the leaves. Loved it. It was great. What about crunchy, you? crunchy, crunchy? I kind of like a whole week of sowing things, you know, yeah. like starting like the weekend before. There was a party, and you better believe that I dressed up as the goddess of the underworld because Shut could not. Up. Yeah. Shut up. I loved it. <laughs> I was like, oh, Sean's going to like this. I felt like, so good. thank Your you. Crown? Oh my God. Dude, Amazon. Amazon. Dude, you have I know. To send me the link. <laughs> I know. Like, I literally was like, oh, can I wear this all the time? I was like, this feels, yeah. this feels right. So, did th- thank you. Did that. Then um, the next night, super cute thing. It's called Night of the Jacks. And there is this ranch that they make this like whole like Halloween, like walking experience with all the different pumpkins and stuff. So we went, we had like a double date and we did that. And we went beforehand and got all the food trucks and walked around and like, that was super fun. And then the next day, Blake and I went to Disneyland and you better fucking believe like you saw that reel that like- Where were you? Yeah, like we literally, yes, obviously. And then, oh fuck. And then, okay, so we had two vendor nights in one week, which was super, super fun. And last Saturday, it was emo night, which is we were at. And it was so, honestly, emo night's always so much fucking fun. And the vendors there are so amazing. You know them, you love them. And then on actual salad, I also went to a party. Nice. Yeah, fun sow and celebration and you guys should be following us on the instagram because we dropped a whole bunch of sow and rituals last week to do still do them the veil still be thin oh my god yeah you can literally do them all the time and some of them are really like more intricate some of them are more easy like it totally depends on your vibe and what you want to do so you know what we did it and now we're looking forward towards the winter solstice we are welcoming in winter and like sad to see the harvest go I'm so upset but winter is a part of the seasons right it is it is the time where Persephone descends into the underworld and we go into ourselves it's the hermit card era we do a lot of learning and introspection during this time so I always get a little stressed around winter time and I know a lot of people get a little stressed but you know what It's a good time to go inward, do some learning and reflection and be stronger for the year ahead. I love that. That was like literally perfectly said. And even though it is going to the dark time of the year, we still have something wicked that we want to talk about today. Oh yeah. We always talk in wicked. What do we We always? Okay. So today we are talking about the witches in literature, which is like an episode we're really excited for because- why wouldn't we want to talk about all the different 
which is, this is like it's banging it's banging it's something that I feel like we all grow up with and we all like it to kind of escape into is this like literary world of witches and like how, how long has it been happening you know since the dawn of time people have been writing about witches so we're stoked it was so funny um what was it last night Blake and I watched Night Before Christmas Avi and there was something in there that I was like wait that's a witch. And I don't remember, I don't remember what it was. Like, obviously we all know that Sally is a witch. Sally's mm-hmm. a witch. Yeah. But I don't remember what it was. I was like, wait, this has been happening since like literally the dawn of time. Witches have been around forever. Yeah. Oh yeah. Powerful women and, and thems and hymns and mm-hmm. theys. Mm-hmm. Very powerful people witches are and all kinds yes. of different people. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. Okay. Should, should we just like get into this? Yeah, so once again, like um, one of the episodes we've had previously, our resources are very, very long. So you can get those in the show notes. So check those out for the resources if you want to know what we're talking about. Um, we will also talk about the books a little bit. We'll, we'll drop the book names. But yeah, let's get right into it with the classics. And we're starting with Circe. Circe is a titanous enchantress, demigoddess, and famed pharmakia of Greek mythology. She holds mastery over the metaphysical knowledge gained from herbs and potions, and is held in high regard for her abilities to transform. She is probably most well-known for her depiction in Homer's The Odyssey of a witchy woman standing between the warrior Odysseus and his way home from Troy, when he and his crew land on Circe's island, Aea. The men visit Circe's home ahead of Odysseus, conducting themselves like pigs and helping themselves to Circe's bounty, and are promptly turned to swine by the goddess. In Homer's poem, his words paint Circe to be a treacherous witch, tricking the men with food and laced wine, but powerful women often put enough fear into men's hearts that it seeps into their words. Nevertheless, Odysseus spends a year with Circe, and whether this was out of coercion, fear, or love, Circe acted as his advisor on his mission ahead, helping him to gain access to the underworld to learn vital truths. Beyond her brush with Odysseus, Circe's abilities to magically advise and perform wonders for others are often swept under the rug. Before her time in Aea, she transformed the nymph Cilia into a monster, competing for the love of the sea god Glaucus after he had spurned her advances. And in other instances, she turned men into woodpeckers and later, of course, swine. There is no fury like a Circe scorned. She was also sought after for her purification rituals, of which she performed for her niece Medea and her crew of Argonauts. As the daughter of the sun god Helios, Circe's eyes emit a solar glow that is one of the few features that mark her as otherworldly. It was always remarked that Circe resembled a human more than most other demigods. Perhaps this was what made her such a successful witch. If you want to learn more about Circe, we highly suggest you check out Circe, the book of Madeline Miller. Next, Morgan Le Fay. Morgan Le Fay, according to Britannica, is a fairy enchantress of Arthurian legend and romance. She was named as the ruler of Avalon, a marvelous island where King Arthur was healed of his wounds. And she was equally described as skilled in the arts of healing and of changing shape. And she is often described with the ability to fly. She first appeared as King Arthur's sister in 1165 CE. 
In the 12th and 13th century elaborations of Arthurian legend, two themes of healing and of hostility, owing to unrequited love, were developed. Le Fay was first responsible for stirring up trouble between Arthur and his queen, Guinevere, yet finally appeared as a beneficent figure conveying Arthur to Avalon. Her magic powers were explained as learned from books and from the enchanter Merlin. Although later versions of the legend place Arthur's death in a Christian context, traditions of living Arthur being tended by Morgan Le Fay until the time should come for him to return to his kingdom, survived in some 13th and 14th century texts, many of them associated with Sicily. Perhaps taken there by Norman Conquers, where the term Feta Morgana is still used to designate a mirage sometimes seen in the Strait of Messina. All right, some of my favorite literary witches, the Weird Sisters. The Weird Sisters, also referred to later as the Three Witches, are the creatures who prophesize the destinies of the main characters in, in Shakespeare's Macbeth, says Britannica. The term Weird Sisters was first used by Scots writers as a sobriquet for fates of Greek and Roman mythology. Through its appearance in Raphael Holyshed's Chronicles, the expression passed to William Shakespeare. Dr. Will Tosh of Shakespeare's Globe writes, Magic and devilry were on people's minds in 1606, the year Macbeth was first performed. England's new Scottish King James was known to his subjects as a committed opponent of witchcraft and a scholar of magic. And less than two years after James' succession, and perhaps six months before Shakespeare started writing Macbeth, the country was profoundly shaken by the exposure of the gunpowder plot. The failed attempt by a group of English Catholic descendants to assassinate the king and all members of parliament in a huge explosion. Preachers were quick to detect demonic encouragement behind the plot. But if the witches are the central focus for this atmosphere of terror, Shakespeare never lets his characters refer to the prophetic threesome as witches, although they're termed as such in the speech prefixes and stage directions. For Macbeth and Banquo, the two characters who encounter them, they are weird women or weird sisters, that unfamiliar umlaut indicating how early modern people said this ancient word with two distinct syllables. In fact, in the first folio, the earliest surviving text of Macbeth, the word is variously spelled wayward, weeward, wayard, all of which would have been pronounced the same way in 1606, weird. In Chronicles, Holoshed describes them as goddesses of destiny, or else some nymphs or fairies endowed with the knowledge of prophecy. In the play, the witch's primary role is the provision of ambiguous fortunes, which stir the ambitious Macbeth to action, despite the fact that the details of his promised fate are decidedly sketchy. When will he be king hereafter? By what means? For how long? Early modern audiences would have heard another meaning in Weird too as the first folio spelling suggests. To them, the word sounded the same as wayward, an insulting term meaning disobedient or perverse. Wayward was frequently applied to women who were perceived to be outspoken or quarrelsome, cardinal sins according to the misogynistic theories of Shakespeare's England. Women who asserted their wisdom and knowledge might well find themselves cascaded as wayward. And if they were vulnerable and unlucky, that waywardness might be interpreted more darkly as sorcery or witchcraft. Which brings us back to the Weird Sisters. 
their weirdness was, from Shakespeare's perspective, both weird and wayward, powerful and marginal. For Shakespeare's first audience, they were figures who represented England's ancient past and the mysterious magic of prophecy. But the withered and weird sisters were also examples of what was becoming a familiar stereotype in an England newly attuned to the risks of sorcery. Poor, disregarded, and insulted old women whose wisdom, if acknowledged at all, could be only understood as witchcraft. Next, we have the Grimm's witches. The witches that appear in folklore, in fairy tales, legend, and other folk narratives are often deeply ambiguous, says Sarah Clito and Brittany Warman of Folklore Thursday. Rarely are they purely good or evil. Consider, for example, the famous Russian folkloric witch Baba Yaga. In some tales, she is an evil monster. In other tales, she is the main character's only hope. She is not just a dangerous witch, but also a maternal benefactress. Witches are liminal creatures of thresholds and becomings who resist simple binaries. They frequently have close ties to the natural world. They are associated with healing and knowledge as often as they are with dark magic. But in either case, witchcraft is all about power. Witches of folklore invite change and galvanize transformation. In 1812, the brothers Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm released the first edition of their children and household tales. Though they revised the tales many times over the next four decades, their fairy tales were always populated with witches and witch-like figures. Though we really acknowledge that Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm themselves did not share today's expansive view of what witches can represent, here are just a few of the vibrant and varied roles that witches play in the brothers' book of fairy tales. The fairy tale witch that almost certainly first comes to mind is that of the monstrous witch. She is the hook-nosed, cackling, long-nailed nightmare of haunted forests, stolen children, and the spookiest of Halloween dolls. This is the cannibalistic witch in the Grimm's famous fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel, who builds an irresistible house out of cake and sugar to lure starving children into her clutches. I always thought that was me, honestly, because it's such I a good fucking idea. Same fucking thing. <laughs> like, that's such a genius idea. Like, come on. She is undeniably a monster. She is an incarnation of uncontrollable hunger in a world where starvation was an all too real possibility. The Grimm's Tale feature many terrible witch mothers and perhaps the famous is the stepmother of Snow White who is knowledgeable in certain magical arts and attempts to poison her stepdaughter and the witch of Rapunzel who takes a child in payment for stolen vegetables from her garden blinds Rapunzel's prince and casts her out in the wilderness alone and pregnant. However, there are positive versions of witchy motherhood to be found in the collection as well. In The Goose Girl and the Well, a witch takes on the mothering role with fierce protectiveness and compassion, guiding the young princess in her care and helping her to better her life. The Brothers Grimm have shown the witch as guide, enchanted lover, and even a princess. The witches of the Grimm's fairy tales occupy a far more diverse set of roles than is frequently assumed. By turns dangerous and kind, hideous and beautiful, outcasted and social, they are often at the heart of their tales, a perfect reminder that fairy tales are never as simple as they first seem. Now, my senior year of college, 
We did the musical, Into the Woods. And guess who I fucking was? I was the fucking witch, Hell people. yeah. Yes. Aesthetics and, and all, right? I, uh, oh my God, it was so ugly. It was so bad. It was so bad. And if you don't know, the musical Into the Woods is written by Stephen Sondheim based on the Brothers Grimm. Um, all, like their folk tales. And I was Rapunzel's witch, quote unquote. Okay. And that role, like it, so crazy. Because back then, no fucking clue that I was a witch no fucking clue and then like talking about this like having the realizations like oh wait hold up like maybe I was I just never realized it but (laughs) children (laughs) yeah I just wanted to eat children and I just wanted the beans I just wanted the fucking magical beans and a cow give me the beans yeah you give me those fucking beans uh yes that's my rant I'm done (laughs) no I love it I love to see you as that that warty prosthetic witch I love it because she's gorgeous like come on you know like that is everything stay away from me you know the first time I ever put the full costume on I remember it was with me Megzi and Nick and we were on stage for some reason or everyone was on stage and I like came up out of like the dressing room and got on the stage and everyone was like are you who Oh my God. It was like <laughs> terrifying. Nick was terrified. He like went into the other room and I was like, well, now you get to sing to this every night. It's great. Commit to this character. <laughs> oh, all right. Let's talk about another beloved storybook witch that I grew up with. Some of you might know this name, Tilly Witch. In Don Freeman's 1969 children's classic, Tilly Ipswich is the queen of Halloween cursed with a desire to be kind instead of wicked as apparently her witchy nature demands for a wicked witch to have such kindly feelings was to say the least quite a switch with her mean old self lost tilly sets out on a quest to find her old self before halloween for she couldn't scare children if she was feeling so good tilly sets off on her magical flying surfboard to see a witch doctor about a cure This witch doctor reinforces how bad it is for a witch to be good and sends her off to witch's finishing school, a school Tilly had attended years prior as the prize pupil. The headmistress was horrified to see Tilly smiling at her door, so she sends her off to carve mean faces and pumpkins with other students. Tilly giggles through black magic class and is constantly scolded, especially when she poured sugar into the cooking cauldron instead of something nasty. Tilly is finally sent to the dunce corner in disgrace, and she's got that big dunce hat on. The angrier Tilly gets in this corner, and the more she thought about being teased for being different, the more wicked she became. She's had it. Stomps on the dunce hat, jumps off the the stool that she's on, and flies off on her surfboard to attend to her duties as Queen of Halloween. So essentially Tilly regains her standing in witchdom as the meanest queen alive. Now, this was always like a cute little Halloween book that, I mean, it's from 1969. I have a copy probably from 1969. It's not in print anymore. And I, it's funny because I was, I was reading about this for the episode and I was on Goodreads and looking at people's reviews of the book and everybody was like, this book made me so upset blah 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 and I was like "Hmm, I wonder okay like why is it making people upset and people were actually raising good points and they were like it really tries to make it seem like we need to become like everybody else 
to fit in. And that's not good, especially in witchdom. And I was like, oh, fuck, one of my favorite little childhood books is really problematic. Hey, that's growth, you know, recognizing that that's growth. So I totally like after reading those reviews, I was like, I totally agree with these people. Like, come on, why are we making Tilly out to be the meanest witch in witchdom when she clearly wants to be nice? And that's not a sickness, you know? So I just thought that was a little funny thing that I had never thought of before when I read this book. Interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. We love to see it. The next one. You know this. You love this. The Wicked Witch of the West. The famous green-faced Wicked Witch of Oz takes many facades over various adaptations to the classic and beloved story. In L. Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the West is the principal villain. She was one of the four conspirators together with wicked witches of other corners and queendoms in the plot to conquer the, and rule Oz. In this original depiction, she appeared as an old hag with three pigtails and an eye patch, with one eye as powerful as a telescope, with which she could watch over her queendom from afar. Much like in the 1939 film adaptation, she was obsessed with finding the shoes of power. However, they were originally silver and not ruby. She commands an army of various creatures, not only winged monkeys, but also wolves, black bees, and crows. When she defeated Dorothy and her companion, she enslaved them and stole one of the silver slippers of power on Dorothy's feet. To thwart her, Dorothy throws water at her, Bomb said that the witch is so affected by water because her wickedness dried her up years before. There are several other pieces of literature that the Wicked Witch is also into, but one of the more well-known adaptations is Wicked, The Life and Times of the Wicked Witch of the West by Gregory Maguire in 1995, which later led to the musical spinoff Wicked. Given the name Alphaba, the novel chronicles the Wicked Witch's revisionary history shown in a sympathetic light, sending the character on a journey to explore the nature of evil that switches the roles between the traditional wicked villain and one of the traditional heroes, the Wizard of Oz, shedding light on how appearances are not always inner truth. Now, I like, I fucking grew up on this musical. I yes, grew up. Yes, talk about it. Tell us about it. No, it just was like, I had the book. Obviously, I listened to the music first. And I saw the musical and I was like, this is fucking brilliant, Stephen Sondheim. Like you fucking just did it. You did it. And it really shows that being different can make you scary. And that's what Alphabet like did. She didn't, she had these amazing powers and she wanted to do good. Mm-hmm. But the quote unquote good people, they didn't want good. They wanted bad, like they wanted evil. And that made her evil because she didn't want to do that shit. Mm-hmm. And then it's just, it's so brilliant. It's so brilliant. This musical is still on Broadway. It's still touring. If you want to go see it, please go see it because it's it's really just fucking amazing. So I'm a bad witch and I've actually never seen Wicked. That's okay. Um, That's not being bad. Okay, thank you for validating me. Um, but no, as I was reading um, about like the book adaptation and the story, I was reading it and I was like, oh, I've actually never like dived into this before. And I was reading it and reading it. And I was like, oh, oh, oh. And just reading the horrible things that the wizard did 
yep. horrible things that this wizard did, who was the supposed hero, you know, of, of the original story, obviously brings Dorothy back from Oz. She's able to get back with Auntie M and, you know, all that. And obviously it's kind of funny to think about how this whole story is a little bit cursed. Um, if we think about like the actual filming of The Wizard of Oz and how traumatic and abusive that whole structure was, if you don't know what I'm talking about, please look up, you know, the behind the scenes stuff of The Wizard of Oz, the way that, you know, um, all the, the actors were, were treated and just like, it's insane. But it's kind of interesting how, and I don't want to ruin this for anybody. So if you don't want to hear anything about this, skip ahead. But, you know, the wizard was such a misogynistic piece of crap, um, you know, a, like a rapist, you know? So like, it's crazy. I would encourage everyone if they haven't read anything about like either read the book or go see the the um the show or watch some clips on youtube from it because it's actually a really interesting deep dive into this anti-hero character and switching the roles and probably one of the best examples we have of a role switch like that of a very famous and classical character you know so i'm literally nodding the whole time i'm just like yes yeah. yes just yes like bobblehead on the yep literally the literally <laughs> i love it I can't wait to see the actual show now after reading like the kind of synopsis of the story. I was like, oh my God. I will take you to Wicked one day. It will happen. Thank you. Now we're going to talk about my phase. All right. So we're going to talk about the Owens women. If anyone knows me, y'all know that I am an honorary Owens woman myself, if I may be so bold, but honestly, I'm obsessed with the Owens family. So who are the Owenses, if you don't know? The descendants of Maria Owens are the beloved Owens witches from Alice Hoffman's Practical Magic series. Most notable after Maria Owens herself are Franny, Jet, Sally, and Jillian Owens. And if you don't know, we have spell oils on our store dedicated to Sally and Jillian Owens. So if you're a big Practical Magic fan like we are, go check them out. In Practical Magic, we witness the story of sisterly devotion strong enough to break a generation's old curse. But to learn the true weight behind what Sally and Jillian were able to accomplish, we must move backwards. In Magic Lessons, we learn of Maria Owens, abandoned in her infancy in a snowy glen of rural England, with only her faithful crow to watch over her. Under the care of a woman that saves her from exposure, Hannah Owens, Maria learns the nameless art, magic. Hannah recognizes the gift Maria has, and she teaches her everything she knows. As she grows and immigrates to the new world, Maria is betrayed by a man who once declared his love for her. She follows him to Salem, Massachusetts, and invokes the curse that will haunt her family for generations to come. In Rules of Magic, we meet Maria's descendants, difficult Franny, with skin as pale as milk and blood red hair. Yes, her hair is red in the book. Shy and beautiful Jet, who can read the thoughts of others. And charismatic Vincent, who began looking for trouble the day he could walk. Yes, a male Owens, shocking. Their mother, Susanna Owens, has strict rules about magic and even stricter rules about love. But the Owens children don't follow the rules, desperate to uncover who they really are. Their journeys and tragedies bring us to practical magic, the first book of the series, but not the last, chronicling the most famous years of the Owens women, with Sally and Jillian Owens, Franny and Jet's great nieces, 
and their struggles with love. Jillian, the wild sister, wishes for nothing but love, all wild love all the time, which promptly lands her with the body of all crimes. Sally, scarred from losing so much love from her parents to her late husband, tried to cut and run, but ends up cleaning up Jillian's messes as usual or actually burying them. When Jillian accidentally poisons her boyfriend, Jimmy, with Belladonna, she runs to Sally and they bury him in the backyard. No, in the books, they do not do the resurrection ritual. They just bury him. He quickly begins to turn their world upside down, making the lilacs grow wild and take over the town as opposed to the roses in the movie, haunting the home and their lives, bringing them misfortune. In the end, the Owens women must come together to banish Jimmy's nasty spirit back into the grave and learn a few things about true love in the end. If you love the movies, you will also love the book. It's different, but it's super great, super interesting. Um, In the book, I really like that Sally actually moves to New York. She moves to New York State, and she tries to establish a life there with her girls, um, Kylie and Antonia. And Kylie and Antonia are actually switched in the book. Um, Antonia is the one with or the older one with red hair and Kylie's the younger one with brown hair. It's kind of funny how everything's all switched up. I mean, the the movie is just a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. I love it. I want to live in it. I want to exist there for all time, 1998. That's what I want. But the books are so good. You got practical magic. You've got rules of magic. You got magic lessons. And there's actually one more new one that Alice Hoffman just came out with that talks about Antonia and Kylie. So I haven't read that one yet, so I can't speak to it, but I'm it's on the list and I'm excited. Yes. Next one, The White Witch. The White Witch is the main antagonist of the novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Podcast, JK. The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis in his series, The Chronicles of Narnia. And yes, it's where the title of our podcast comes from too. So there you go. She is also known as Jadis, a descendant of the demoness Lilith and of giants and was born before the creation of Narnia. Jadis was sole surviving resident and the self-declared final queen of charm. She was an extremely powerful sorceress. Jadis was born into the royal family of the world of charm who were said to be part jinn and part giant. Very little is known about her childhood or early adult life. It was known, however, that she had practiced witchcraft in her own world and delved into dark magic, far beyond what was considered proper. She had discovered a magic spell that her ancestors had hidden long before, strong enough to destroy all living things except the caster. This was known as the deplorable world, and was Jada's greatest weapon. As a member of the royal family, she became engaged in a global political struggle with her own sister, as the two fought to become queen of their worldwide empire. And at the beginning of this world, there was a clear agreement made between the two that prohibited the use of magic. Though, according to Jadis herself, her sister broke this promise. The final battle of the conflict lasts three days, during which Jada's forces were slaughtered completely by those of her sister until Jada stood alone within her palace. As her sister climbed the palace terrace toward her, Jadis, rather than surrender, suddenly spoke the deplorable world. Charn instantly became a desolate world where all living organisms perished instantly. By default, Jadis became queen. She was accidentally brought to the world of Narnia on the day of its creation. 
Although she was banished to the north by the great lion, Aslan, she returned 900 Narnian years later and usurped the throne from the original royal family of Narnia. As a curse upon her Narnian subjects, she began the long winter magically forcing Narnia into a hundred-year state of frozen snow and ice, which lasted all through her reign, thus earning her the title the White Witch. Her tyranny eventually evoked the Narnians into a triumphant uprising known as the Winter Revolution. She is eventually defeated by Aslan, the Christ figure of the story, and she casts into the category of devil. All right, here's another one of my favorites, the Beldam. The Beldam, also known as the Other Mother, is the main antagonist in Neil Gaiman's 2002 book Coraline and later the film adaption of the same name. She is a demonic, shape-shifting entity who lures children into another dimension with the goal of consuming their flesh for strength and taking their souls. She spied on our lives through the little doll's eyes and saw that we weren't happy. Her original appearance eerily resembles Coraline's true mother, Mel Jones, but her true sinister form is later revealed to be that of a skeleton or arachnid form. She is an anomalous, mysterious, and inhuman creature that created much of the other world for her own entertainment, according to Gaiman. She is almost identical to Coraline's real mother, but taller and thinner, with long black hair that seems to move by itself, black button eyes, paper white skin, and extremely long twitchy fingers with long dark red nails. She cannot create, but only copy, twist, and change things from the real world when constructing her version of it. She uses her abilities to lure children into a small world of her own creation, which she models into a world she believes said children would prefer to the real world. After a few visits, she offers to let them stay forever if they have black buttons similar to the copies sewn into their eyes, after which she removes their soul and imprisons what's left inside an inescapable closet. The other mother was referred to several times as the Beldam, an archaic word meaning hag or witch. This character is pulled from folklore, but in The New Mother by Lucy Clifford, the archetype of Gaiman's other mother is strikingly similar. In The New Mother, two good children are coerced down a dark path by a mysterious girl with a mysterious Pandora's box in some woods. The children's mother is so disappointed that she leaves them for a new mother, one with glass eyes and a wooden tail. Next, another one that we love, Sabrina Spellman. Sabrina Spellman is the title character from the Archie Comics book, Sabrina the Teenage Witch. Sabrina was created by writer George Gladier and artist Dan DiCarlo and first appeared in Archie's Madhouse in October 1962. In the comic Sabrina, a half-witch, her mother is an ordinary human or mortal, as witches refer to them, while her father is a witch, lives with her two aunts, Hilda and Zelda Spellman, both witches themselves. In the fictional town of Greendale, which is located somewhere near Riverdale, the home of Archie Andrews. Also living with the three women as the family pet is Salem Saberhagen, a witch who has been turned into a cat as punishment for world domination attempts. Most of Sabrina's ventures consist of Sabrina either trying to use her powers in secret to help others. Witches generally are not allowed to tell immortals about their abilities or existence, or dealing with the day-to-day -day trials of being a teenager. A recurring theme to Sabrina's stories and her learning more about the proper use of her powers, either through her aunts, 
or from trips to a magical dimension that is the home of various magical mythological creatures, including other witches. Various names are given to this dimension. The late 2000 comics refer to it as the magic realm, while the live action sitcom referred it to as the other realm. Sabrina's primary romantic interest is her mortal boyfriend named Harvey Kinkle, who, like nearly all the other mortals in Sabrina's world, is unaware his girlfriend is a witch. But if we do talk about the Netflix series of the chaos, mm-hmm. the chilling adventures of Sabrina, yeah, we are team Nick all the way. Oh, yeah. Sorry, yeah. not sorry, Harvey. <laughs> Harvey's a, a noodle. Like I don't. He, he's he's a noodle. I'm I'm not a fan. So we love Sabrina. Go watch Chaos. Um. Also, like if you're a comic book fan, the reason we included this is because she's originally a literary. She's technically a literary character, right? Yeah. She's a comic book character. We need to also raise up our comic book readers, you know, because that's that's valid too. I love a good comic book. So next is uh, a really uh really funny witch who is close to my heart. She's a lot more than funny. She's brilliant. Uh, She's the brightest witch in her year. Um, And it's really funny because like Zach will always make comments when we're watching the Harry Potter movies about how I'm her because I'm annoying. Um, Like when, so she's, you know, every time like someone asks a question, her hand shoots up, Zach will be like, it's giving you like, that's, and I'm like, yeah, that's how I was when I was in school hand shoots up like like literally out of the the like socket shoots out of the socket um in college just as annoying too like it's Livio saw not Livio saw exactly let me correct you on your spells <laughs> all right we're talking about Hermione Jean Granger an English muggle-born witch to Mr. and Mrs. Granger in September of course this is a Virgo At the age of 11, she learned about her magical nature and was accepted into Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. Hermione began attending Hogwarts in 1991 and was sorted into Gryffindor House. She possessed a brilliant academic mind and proved to be a gifted student in almost every subject that she studied to the point where she was made nearly a Ravenclaw by the sorting hat. Hermione first met her future best friends, Harry Potter and Ronald Weasley, aboard the Hogwarts Express, and initially they found her unfriendly and somewhat of an insufferable know-it-all. We know the life too well. An impression reinforced by her constant correct answers and eagerness to please the professors. However, she stepped in to take the blame from the boys after they had saved her from a troll on Halloween in 1991, surprising them in a grateful way, which led to them quickly becoming friends. She later played a crucial role in protecting the Philosopher's Stone from Voldemort. In her second year, Hermione had a key role in the discovery of the Chamber of Secrets, before falling victim to the Basilisk unleashed upon Hogwarts following the opening of the Chamber. However, she recovered from her petrification under the care of Madame Pomfrey with Professor Sprout's Mandrake restorative drought. The next year, Hermione was granted permission to use a time turner from the Ministry of Magic to facilitate her volition to study far more subjects than were possible without time travel, which is like a goal for me. Though she and Harry later used it to rescue Sirius Black from the Dementor's kiss and Buckbeak the Hippogriff from execution. During her fourth year, Hermione became an advocate for the better treatment of house elves, forming the association Spew and helped in Harry's preparation for the Triwizard Tournament. 
In her fifth year, Hermione was the driving force behind the creation of Dumbledore's army and fought alongside fellow DA members in the Battle of the Department of Mysteries, iconic. In her sixth year, Hermione continued her role as prefect and fought in the Battle of the Astronomy Tower. Hermione played a significant role in many other battles of the Second Wizarding War as well. In 1997, she fought in the Battle of the Seven Potters alongside the Order of the Phoenix. Hermione and Rong decided not to return to Hogwarts for their final year of studies, instead choosing to accompany Harry on his quest to find and destroy Lord Voldemort's Horcruxes, a quest in which several of her actions were essential. She destroyed Hufflepuff's cup, a Horcrux, with Ron using a basilisk fang found in the Chamber of Secrets. Hermione then fought in the Battle of Hogwarts, helping in the defeat of the Death Eater who tortured her, Bellatrix Lestrange. Following the Second Wizarding War, Hermione went back to Hogwarts to complete her education. She later found employment with the Ministry of Magic, furthering the cause for the better treatment of house elves. Afterwards, she was promoted to the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, where she dedicated herself to eradicating old laws that were biased in favor of purebloods. Hermione eventually married Ron Weasley, and together they had two children, Rose and Hugo. She became the godmother of Harry and Ginny Potter's eldest son, James. By the year 2019, Hermione had become the Minister for Magic, or the Mistress of Magic, come on. Mm-hmm. I fucking love Hermione Granger. Just putting that out there. Next part. Okay, so we got New Blood. So some not so well-known witchy novels to pick up. The Witch of Willow Hall. In 1811, New England, Lydia Montrose unwittingly summoned a dark power from within herself to torment a neighborhood bully. Now 18, her family is forced to move from Boston to Willow Hall Estate in New Oldbury, Massachusetts, to escape scandalous rumors concerning her older sister, Catherine. While Catherine detests the countryside, Lydia and her younger sister, Emmeline, relish the fresh air and the less constricting society. They also enjoy the acquaintance of their father's new business partner, John Barrett. But as Lydia starts to fall for John, disturbing things begin to happen at Willow Hall. Lydia sees ghosts and hears voices who try to convince her to do bad things. Following a monumental tragedy, she will have to discover who she is in order to set things right. This great loss pushes Lydia to see past her fear and look back to the women in her family that have stood up to injustice, just as she had in her early years and she finds herself a true descendant of Salem. She slowly finds within herself the power to define her future and carry herself forward in a time where women were nothing more than decoration. All right. Now we're going to talk about the Hollow series. This is a relatively modern series, but this is actually a series that I grew up on. So if there's any Hollows fans out there, hell yeah. The Hollows book series, authored by Kim Harrison, primarily focuses on a witch, Rachel Morgan, who finds herself facing unimaginable foes from every species, human and interlanders, with the help of her friends and business partners, Vampire Ivy Tamwood and Pixie Jinx, in which they run a detection service independent of the police force. Now, interlanders uh, were what were known as the you know, non-human people. So the vampires, the pixies, the witches, people like that. 
The series setting takes place in present day Cincinnati, but it's part of an alternate universe where in the 1960s, the scientific community pooled all of their resources and cracked the genetic code. So biological weapons replaced the space race until the tragedy of the turn. This altering moment or turning point in history shifted the balance of power between humans and the magical species known as Inderlanders when they exposed themselves to humanity to save them from extinction. After approximately 40 years, humans and Interlanders are living together in society, but tensions exist between the races, even between Interlander races. Rachel Morgan is the protagonist of the Hollow series. She is a red-haired, pale-skinned demoness with green eyes and frizzy, curly, bright hair. She is also a Leo, so we had to put that in there. She's impulsive and rash, and her descent from light earth witch into leyline, dark, and demonic magic is necessitated by her escalating need for more power to balance her enemies. So she was a witch, and then she becomes a demon later in the series. So there's a lot going on there. She is one of the only survivors of a genetic disease called Rosewood Syndrome. The reason for her survival is solely due to the illegal genetic manipulation altering her DNA. So the body wouldn't attack itself from an overabundance of rosewood. The Hollow series follows Rachel's journey through the different types of magic she must learn and master in order to protect herself from her human, otherworldly, and magical enemies. It's a good one. It's a good one if you like like long-standing fiction and you like a lot of fantasy. Um, go for it if you're into that sort of thing. Last but certainly not least, The Vine Witch. A young witch emerges from a curse to find her world upended in this gripping fantasy of betrayal, vengeance, and self-discovery set in turn-of-the-century France. For centuries, the vineyards at Chateau Renard have depended on the talent of their vine witches, whose spells help create the world-renowned wine of the Chanceau Valley. Then the skill of divining harvest fell into ruin when sorceress Elena Bourneau was blindsided by a curse. Now, after breaking the spell that confined her to the shallows of a marshland and weakened her magic, Elena is struggling to return to her former life. And the vineyard she was destined to inherit is now in the possession of a stranger. This stranger, Jean-Paul Martel, naively favors science over superstition, and he certainly doesn't endorse the locals' belief in witches. But Elena knows a hex when she sees one and the vineyard is covered in them. To stay on and help the vines recover, she hides her true identity, along with her plans for revenge against whoever stole seven winters of her life. And she won't rest until she can defy the evil powers that are still a threat to herself, John Paul, and the ancient vine witch legacy in the rolling hills of the Chanceau Valley. This is a good one as well. It's a good standalone novel. I believe there's a series behind it, but I'm not 100% sure because I only read The Vine Witch. But it's a quick, fun read. If you like wine, if you like witches, this is a fun one. I would suggest any of these books, um, especially The Vine Witch or The Witch of Willow Hall, if you just want like a nice standalone um, book to read about witches during the spooky and dark season of the year. So... Yes, and that's it. I mean, this doc could literally go on forever, but like, these are just a couple of, I mean, more than a couple, but like some really important witches in literature. All right, so quick little last bit. We just want to talk a little bit about why this is important. I mean, and often in literature classes, we're always hearing, but why, right? So what do these witches of literature teach us? So 
just a few things that we picked out, you know, especially in the characters of Cersei and Morgan Le Fay, if we want to start with the classics. Um, transformation is not monstrosity, you know, yeah. we we love to see transformation. Courtney, you and I have like had a lot of transformation this year. And it has been really needed. I mean, our Cape Witch oil helped us so much with that. You know, that was like a really transformative oil for me that I was working with in my transformation rituals. It's not monstrosity, you know? Transformation can mean something beautiful. It doesn't necessarily mean a bad thing. I agree with you. When uh, we talk about the Weird Sisters, outspoken women were powerful and outcasted, which is still happening today. So that theme is still, I mean, it's still going. Even like the Grimm's fairy tales, the archetype of the witch is diverse and always being redefined, which that's literally still happening all the time. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy to think like, you know, witch can mean whatever you want it to. I mean, I obviously take the term very literally. I practice witchcraft, but I also want to stand against injustice. I want to speak out about things that bother me. When I see someone being oppressed, I'm going to speak up for them. And that's witchcraft to me as well. There's also a song that it's literally W-I-T-C-H. And I love how they put it as a woman in total control of herself. And that sounds so lame, but like, that's, that's fucking true. Yeah. And obviously Tilly Witch, we talked about this already, but we should be celebrated for our differences and what we bring to the path. I think this is something that like, we see this constantly on witch talk, on the, the witches of Instagram stuff, on the, in the social media centers of the culture, right? That everybody's saying, oh, you shouldn't do it this way. You shouldn't do it this way. You have to do it this way. You have to do it this way. No, you don't. You know, we always talk about like, obviously don't be a dick and take from closed practices if you're not part of that closed practice. But beyond that, There's a lot of ways in which you can integrate your individuality into witchcraft and you should be celebrated for doing things differently. Like Mm -hmm. if I don't want to use, if I want to use regular table salt for uh, a banishing ritual instead of black salt, I'm going to fucking do it because maybe that's what I have on hand. Maybe that's what I feel more comfortable using, you know? So the aggression towards um, doing things a certain way is something I push back against so fucking hard. Agreed. When it comes to wicked, truth is not always appearance, which is very, very true. It's true. Yep. Yep. The white witch from the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, power should not mean oppression. So, you know, what comes great with great power comes great responsibility, right? And we have to be mindful of that. So, my girl, the Beldam, the other mother. Deception is not control, but it's weakness. Kind of something similar a bit that, you know, she couldn't create, but she could copy and twist, right? It's it's a weak, a weak thing to deceive, you know, being being honest, being upfront about things is what we have to face oftentimes when we want to make change. Yeah, yeah. Sabrina Spellman, balance is just as important as power. That's a heavy hitter. Yeah. And then, of course, my girl, Hermione Granger, there was always an answer to a problem if you read enough, but also if you like keep your ears open, keep your mind open, you pick up a few things along the way, there's always going to be an answer. I tend to go down a rabbit hole when I have an issue where I'm, you know, hyperventilating and I'm like, this is, we're never going to solve this. We're never going to solve this. No, there's always going to be a way out if you just stop, drop and think. 
right? Mm -hmm. The Witch of the Willow Hall. Our true natures will always save us in the end. I love that. Let's remember we're descendants of Salem. And the Hollow series, um, Rachel Morgan, Mo power hoarding and knowledge, Mo problems. Got more power, more problems, right? That kind of goes along with um, the White Witch. Power shouldn't be used as a tool to oppress others, but a tool to help others. Yeah, and the Vine Witch. Revenge is never really that sweet. Yep. And that's what we're going to leave you with because that's a really powerful statement. If you have different themes or different ideas on honestly, what do you think a witch stands for? What do you think as a witch that you are? Let us know. Please tell us. We want to hear, we want to hear your themes. We want to hear what you believe in, what you think. Like open discussion, but we really hope that you enjoyed this episode because this is just it makes you think a lot about which is from the past, which is in the present and which is in the future. Yeah, absolutely. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, then you probably enjoyed our past episodes. Let's hope. And pretty sure that means you'll enjoy our future episodes. So smash that subscribe button, hit that like button, hit that follow button on Instagram. Um, get on our email list. You're going to want to know what's going on with us. We have some big changes coming, big changes, exciting changes, fun changes. You're going to want to be part of it. So come hang out with us on that email list. You know that we got the oils, you know that we got the shop, go get it, go check it out. It's a great time. We stand behind our oils. We fucking love them as you hear about every single episode. So check them out if you are so inclined. Um, like we said, follow us on Instagram, drink your water, read your books, anything else. Uh, don't forget to eat. There, there it is. I eat some good sweets. And yeah, I mean, you basically said it. You said it, my dude. We love you guys. We will see you next time. Bye.